Hi, and welcome back to Chronicles The Hundred Years' War, a weekly podcast in which we are reading through the chronicles of France, England, Spain, and other adjoining places. Last episode, we had a look at Queen Isabel invading England in a civil war. It became quickly clear from the reading that she was going to be quite successful with her allies from Hainault and the Low Countries, as well as the Empire in Europe. We also found that it seemed like things were going to go pretty poorly for the Spencer family and Edward II. We're going to continue with that discussion to see some of the after effects of the Civil War and how the resolution of that plays out. We did get a brief look at that from some of the historical texts we read last episode covering a historian's account of what had happened. It will be good to see how that's recounted by the Chronicle, which is one of the better ways we have of getting at least close to a contemporary account of what would have been involved at the time, what would have been reported at the time, what would have been considered true at the time. So let's dive into it. We're starting with chapter 12 here, how that Sir Hugh Spencer, the Elder, and the Earl of Arundel were judged to death. When the Queen and her barons and all her company were lodged at their ease, then they besieged the castle near as they might. The Queen caused Sir Hugh Spencer the Elder and the Earl of Arundel to be brought forth before Edward her son and all the barons that were there present. And she said how that she and her son should take right and law on them according to their deserts. Then Sir Hugh Spencer said, Madame, God give us good judge and good judgment. And if we cannot have it in this world, I pray God we may have it in another. Then stepped forth Sir Thomas Wake, a good knight and marshal of the host. And there openly he recounted their deeds in writing. And then turned him to another ancient knight to the intent that he should find him guilty on the charge and to declare what should be done with such persons, and what judgment they should have for such crimes. Then the said knight counselled with other barons and knights, and so reported their opinions, the which was how they had well deserved deaths for diverse horrible deeds. The which that he had committed, for all the trespass rehearsed before to justify to be of truth. Wherefore, they have deserved, for the diversities of their trespasses, to have judgment in three diverse manners. First, to be drawn, and after, to be headed, and then to be hanged on the gibbet. This in likewise, as they were judged, so it was done and executed before the castle of Bristow in the sight of the king and of Sir Hugh Spencer the Younger. This judgment was done in the year of our Lord, MCCXVI, on St. Dennis's Day in October. And after this execution, the king and the young Spencer, seeing themselves thus besieged in this mischief, and knew that no comfort might come to them, in a morning betimes they too shall with a small company enter into a little vessel behind the castle, thinking to have fled to the country of Wales. But they were eleven days in the ships, and enforced it to sail as much as they might. But whatsoever they did, the wind was every day contrary to them by the will of God. But every day, once or twice, they were ever brought again within a quarter mile to the same castle. At last it fortune, Sir Henry Beaumont, son to the Viscount Beaumont in England, entered into a barge, and certain company with him, and spied this vessel, and rode after him so long, that the ship wherein the king was could not flee fast before them. But finally they were overtaken, and so brought in again into the town of Bristow, and delivered to the queen and her son as prisoners. Thus it befell of this high and hardy enterprise of Sir John of Hainault and his company, for when they departed and entered into their ships at Dordrecht, they were but three hundred men of arms, 
and thus by their help and the lords of England, the Queen Isabel conquered again all her estate and dignity, and put unto execution all her enemies, whereof all the most part of the realm were right joyous. Without it were a few persons such as were favourable to Sir Hugh Spencer and of his part. And when the King and Sir Hugh Spencer were brought to Bristow by the said Sir Henry Beaumont, the King was then sent to the council of all the barons and knights of the strong castle of Berkeley, and put him under good keeping and honest, and there were ordained people of the estate about him, such as knew right well what they ought to do. But they were straightly commanded that they should in no wise suffer him to pass out of the castle. And Sir Hugh Spencer was delivered to Sir Thomas Wake, Marshal of the Host, and after that the Queen departed and all her host towards London, which was the chief city of England, and so rid forth on their journeys. And Sir Thomas Wake caused Sir Hugh Spencer to be fast bound on the least and leanest of all the host, and caused him to wear a tabard such as traitors and thieves were wont to wear. And thus he was led in scorn after the queen's route throughout all the towns, as they passed with trumps and canniars to do him great despite, till at last they came to the city of Hereford, whereas the queen was honourably received with great solemnity and all her company, and there she kept the feast of All Saints' Day with great royalty, for the love of her son and strangers that were there. Let's keep going to chapter 13, how Sir Hugh Spencer was put to his judgment. When this feast was done, then Sir Hugh Spencer, who was nothing beloved, was brought forth before the Queen and all the lords and knights, and there before him in writing was rehearsed all his deeds against which he could give no manner of answer. And so he was then judged by plain first sentence, first to be drawn on a hurdle with trumps and trumpets through all the city of Hereford, and after to be brought into the marketplace, where all people were assembled, and there to be tied on high upon a ladder that every man might see him and in the same place there to be made a great fire, and there his privy members cut from him, because they reputed him a heretic and so deemed, and so to be brand on the fire before his face, and then his heart to be drawn out of his body and cast into the fire, because he was a false traitor of heart, and that by his traitor's counsel and exoneration the king had shamed his realm and brought it to great mischief, for he had caused to be beheaded the greatest lords of his realm, by whom the realm ought to have been sustained and defended, and so, and he so induced the king that he would not see the queen his wife, nor Edward his eldest son, and caused him to chase them out of the realm for fear of their lives, and then his head to be stricken off and sent to London, and according to his judgment he was executed. Then the queen and all her lords took their way towards London, and did so much by their journeys that they arrived at the city of London, and they of the city with great company met them and did to the queen and her son great reverence, and to all the company as they thought it was best bestowed. And when they had thus received and feasted the space of fifteen days, the knight strangers, and namely Sir John of Hainault, had great desire to return again to their own countries, for they thought they had done well in their devoir and achieved great honour, and so took their leave of the queen and the lords of the realm. And the queen and the lords required them to tarry longer a little space, to see what should be done with the king who was in prison. But the strangers had so great a desire to return to their own countries that to pray them to the contrary availed not. And when the queen and her council saw that, they desired Sir John of Hainault to tarry till it was past Christmas, and to retain with him such of his company as he pleased best. The gentle knight would not leave to perform his service, but courteously granted the queen to tarry as long as it pleased her, and caused to tarry such of his company as he could get. That was but few for the remnant 
for the remnant would in no wise tarry, wherefore he was displeased. When the queen and her council saw that they would not abide for no prayers, then they made them great cheer and feasts, and the queen made to be given to them plenty of gold and silver for the cost of their services, and did give great jewels to each of them according to their degrees, so as they all held themselves right well content. And over that they had silver for their horses, such as they would leave behind, at their own estimation, without any grudging. And thus Sir John of Hinault abode still with such and thus Sir John of Hinault abode still with a small company among the Englishmen, who always did him as much honour as they could imagine and to all his company and in likewise so did the ladies and damsels of the country for there are great plenty of countesses and great ladies and gentle purcells who were come thither to accompany the queen for it seemed well to them the night sir john of hanault had well deserved the cheer and feast they made him we're going to keep reading just a little bit more to get through chapter 14 the coronation of king edward the third at which point we'll have a bit of a discussion about what's happened here with the wrap-up of the war after the most part of the company of Hinault were departed, and Sir John Hinault, Lord of Beaumont, tarried, the Queen gave leave to her people to depart, saving a certain noble knights, the which she kept still about her and her son to counsel them, and commanded all them that departed to be at London next Christmas, for as then she was determined to keep open court, and they all promised her so to do. And when Christmas was come, she held a great court, and thither came dukes, earls, barons, knights, and all the nobles of the realm, with prelates and burgesses of good towns. And at this assembly it was advised that the realm could not long endure without a head and a chief lord. Then they put in writing all the deeds of the king who was in prison, and all that he had done by evil counsel, and all his usages and evil behavings, and how evil he had governed his realm. The which was read openly in plain audience to the intent that the noble sages of the realm might take thereof good advice and to fall to accord how the realm should be governed from thenceforth. And when all the cases and deeds that the king had done were consented to, and all his behavings and usages were read and well understood. the barons and knights and all the councils of the realm drew them apart to council, and the most part of them accorded, and namely the great lords and nobles with the burgesses of the good towns, according as they had heard, say and knew themselves the most part of his deeds. Wherefore they concluded that such a man was not worthy to be king, nor to bear a crown royal, nor have his name of a king. But they all accorded that Edward his eldest son, who was there present and was rightful heir, should be crowned king instead of his father, so that he would take good counsel, sage and true, about him, so that the realm from thenceforth might be better governed than it was before, and that the old king, his father, should be well and honestly kept as long as he lived according to his estate. And thus it was agreed by all the nobles, so it was accomplished, and then was crowned with a crown royal at the Palace of Westminster. Beside London, the young king, Edward III, who in his days after was right fortunate and happy in arms. This coronation was in the year of our Lord, M-C-C-X-X-V-I, on Christmas Day. And as then, the young king was about the age of 16, and they held the feast till the conversion of St. Paul following. 
and in the meantime greatly was feasted Sir John of Hainault and all the princes and nobles of his country, and was given to him and to his company many rich jewels. And so he and his company in great feast and solace both with lords and ladies tarried till the twelfth day. And then Sir John of Hainault heard tidings how that the great king of Bohemia and Earl of Hainault his brother and the other great plenty of lords of France had ordained to be at Condé at the great feast and tourney that was there cried. Then would Sir John of Hainault no longer abide for no prayer, so great desire he had to be at the said tourney, and to see the earl his brother and other lords of his country, and specifically the great right noble king in largesse, the gentle Charles king of Bohemia. When the young king Edward and his queen mother and the barons saw that he would no longer tarry, and that their request could not avail, they gave him leave sore against their wills, and the king by the counsel of the queen his mother did give him four hundred marks sterling of rent heritable to hold of him in fee, to be paid every year in the town of Bruges, and also did give to Philip of Chateau, his chief esquire and his sovereign counsellor, a hundred mark of rent yearly, to be paid at the said place, and to be delivered him much money to pay therewith the cost of him and his company, till he come into his own country and caused him to be conducted with many noble knights to Dover, and there delivered him all his passage free, and to the ladies that would come into England with the Queen, and to the ladies that would come into England with the Queen, and namely to the Countess of Warren, who was sister to the Earl of Bar, and diverse other ladies, gave him great abundance of fair and rich jewels at his departing. And when Sir John of Hainault was departed from the young King Edward and all his company, and would come to Dover, they entered incontinent into their ships to pass to the sea to the intent to come betimes to the said tourney. And there went with him fifteen young lusty knights of England to go to this tourney with him and to acquaint them with strange lords and knights that should be there. And they had great honour of all the company that tourneyed at that time at Condor. So we can see that as far as the Chronicle is concerned, that was an incredibly decisive victory. And certainly the reports from historians that we read last week mentioned that there wasn't a lot of resistance really from anybody on Edward II's side. What's interesting at the end there is it does seem like there was a fairly safe and stable exchange of power. There were no major supporters or riots for Edward II. He was certainly unpopular. People at the time clearly didn't like him. But it's very rare that you'll find in feudal societies that someone just decides that a king has done a bad job and we're going to depose that king and we're going to elect a new one. And so it'll be interesting to have a look and see if things went that smoothly in the historical accounts that we have from today's historians. Certainly it seems strange that Edward II didn't get a chance to speak for himself. It was simply declared that he had done a bad job. They read out how he had done a bad job and then he was deposed. Let's have a look and see if we can find anything that might give us a new perspective on that particular event. Let's return to David Hume and William Cook Stafford's His The History of England from the Earliest Period to the Present Time, compiled from the Most Authentic Sources by London Printing and Publishing Company Limited, London and New York. This is the same book as we were reading last week, and I'm just going to largely pick up from where we left off. So we're on page 208 here with the chapter heading, The King Dethroned. The Queen, to avail herself of the prevailing delusion, summoned in the King's name to a Parliament at Westminster. 
on the 7th of January, 1327, where, together with the power of her army and the authority of her partisans among the barons, who were concerned to secure their past treasons by committing new acts of violence against their sovereign, she expected to be seconded by the fury of the populace, the most dangerous of all instruments and the least answerable for their excesses. A charge was drawn up against the king. It was brought forward and read on the 13th of January, in which, even though it was framed by his inveterate enemies, nothing but his narrow genius or his misfortunes were objected to him. For the greatest malice found no particular crime with which it could reproach this unhappy prince. He was accused of incapacity for government, of wasting his time in idle amusements, of neglecting public business, of being swayed by evil counsellors, of having lost by his misconduct the kingdom of Scotland and part of Guienne, which was in France, and to swell the charge, even the death of some barons, and the imprisonment of some prelates convicted of treason were laid to this account. It was in vain, amidst the violence of arms and tumult of the people, to appeal either to law or reason. The disposition of the king without any appearing opposition was voted by Parliament. The prince, already declared regent by his party, was placed on the throne. On the 2nd of January 1327, Edward III was proclaimed, and it was announced to the nation that by consent of his peers and commoners, his father was ousted from the throne. On the 29th, the younger prince was crowned at Westminster, and a deputation was sent to Edward at Kenilworth, which menaces and terror soon extorted from him. So even that quick section brings a very different perspective. Certainly it's written from a rather passionate perspective, but we can see that rather than a council meeting of educated people who worked through a series of crimes that were committed, what we're seeing here is a perspective more of a group of powerful people who are held hostage by a number of factors. The queen seems to be in charge, but there are a number of barons who have effectively committed treason and committed a number of conspiracies and crimes that, should the other side have won, would have seen them heavily punished. Those people are keen to legitimize what they have done as freedom fighting rather than insurrection, as fighting for the realm rather than betraying vows of duty and honor towards Edward II. It also further underwrites the fact that the English people were incredibly unhappy with how things had been under Edward II, and that there was a very large popular push for change or removal of government, and failing to do something of a extreme measure could lead Isabel to be in exactly the same position as Edward had been, facing mass dissent, riots, and large groups of people failing to do anything that she needed them to do, from paying taxes to working the land. Continued civil war would have been disastrous. England had been on and off again in civil war almost since the start of Edward's realm, with lords being killed for dissenting opinions, multiple spats between Edward and nobles, and then finally this great civil war that had finally removed him from the throne and sent him to prison. If England was to get anywhere or do anything of any kind of scale in repairing itself or its place on the world stage, it was definitely going to need people to work. It was going to need the serfs to do what was considered their duty, and it was going to need 
the nobles to play along and to make sure that they were willing to help protect England, pay rents and taxes and, and have England function as a feudalistic society was designed to do. And so let's press on for just one more chapter and have a look at the guilt of the queen and the king's murder. But it was impossible that the people, however corrupted by the barbarity of the times and still farther inflamed by faction, could forever remain insensible to the voice of nature. Here a wife had first deserted and next invaded and then dethroned her husband, had made her minor son an instrument in this unnatural treatment of his father, had by lying pretenses seduced the nation into a rebellion against the sovereign, had pushed them into violence and cruelties that had dishonored them all. And those circumstances were so odious in themselves and formed such a complicated sense of guilt that the last reflection sufficed it to open men's eyes and to make them detest this flagrant infringement of every public and private duty. The suspicions which soon arose of Isabel's criminal commerce with Maltma and proofs which daily broke out of this part of her guilt increased the general abhorrence against her and her hypocrisy in public bewailing with tears the king's unhappy fate was not able to deceive even the most stupid and prejudiced of her adherents. I'm going to pause there. And I'm going to do that for a very particular reason, and that's to return to a point that I've mentioned a couple of times now, and that is that there is a lot of problems that you can get into if you accept things at face value. One of the prices of learning is that you do need to remain vigilant as you work through whatever it is that you're reading or learning about. There was a lot of good information that we heard in the chapter that we're listening to and the one before it, but as you may have picked up on from what we were reading, there's a lot of persuasive language there, and that second chapter that we were just taking a look at has a lot of really pointed language. There's a very clear and pressing bias on the part of the author that makes it very obvious that they have a particular case that they're trying to push or a particular point of view that they hold quite severely. Nothing that we've seen in the Chronicle so far and historical accounts we've looked at have used quite such language to name Isabel wailing or crimes against good nature. This kind of talk really does undermine the factual information by making it sometimes hard to sift through what is correct and what is opinion. That's one of the reasons I've mentioned that I'll try and provide commentary, but I'll also read from historical accounts in an attempt to maybe separate those two things a little bit and hopefully provide some more factual information that we can find once we stitch together whatever we can take from the Chronicle and historians writing about those particular times. So in this case, I do think what we've learned so far has been of value, but I am also going to read a quick section from The Plantagenets by Dan Jones, whose book we've looked at a couple of times now, and just have a quick look at what he has to say about this particular section. When news reached London that Isabella and Mortimer had landed on the East Coast, Edward was dining in the Tower of London with the younger dispenser. He was dismayed. The size of the force reported in Suffolk, probably no more than 1,500 men in total, was tiny. But the king rightly concluded that this meant the bulk of his enemies were already inside England. Alas, alas, the bright conical has him exclaim. We be all betrayed, for certain with so little power she had never come to land, but folk of this country have consented. Like King John before him, Edward's violent paranoia had bred real treachery. As news of Isabella and Mortimer's arrival spread through England, 
supporters flocked to her side. The Anonymale Chronicler preserved an open letter written in French to the citizens of London, which proclaimed that the Queen came with good intent for the honour and profit of the Holy Church of a very dear Lord the King to uphold and safeguard all the realm. She offered a reward to any citizen who could help her destroy Sir Hugh Dispenser, our enemy, and all the realms, as well you know. Copies of the letter were fixed to windows, and the sealed original was pinned on the Eleanor Cross at Cheapside, a highly symbolic location for Queen's propaganda. Isabella was claiming the inheritance of the old king and his beloved queen, and she found a willing audience. The Londoners rose in revolt on 15 October. They dragged John Marshall, a close ally of the younger Dispenser, from his house and beheaded him on Cheapside, the great thoroughfare through London. The Bishop of Exeter, a former royal treasurer, was discovered seeking sanctuary in the porch of St. Paul's. Although he rode in full armour, he was dragged from his horse as he neared the north gate of the cathedral and taken to Cheapside, where the mutilated and bloody body of Marshall lay prone on the ground. The Bishop's armour was wrenched from his body and his head was cut off with a bread knife. Two of his attendants were also murdered. Anarchy reigned. Every supporter of the realm, whether Bishop, Earl, Judge, or or lowly servant began to flee for his life. Members of Edward's favourite monastic order, the Dominicans, disappeared into hiding. Officers connected with the dispenser's regime and those who served it were plundered, burned, and smashed. The plaque erected by Thomas Earl of Lancaster to commemorate the 1311 ordinances was erected again in St. Paul's for the first time since the Earl's death. Meanwhile, Isabella was moving west. Edward and the dispensers had fled the Tower of London almost as soon as they learned of her arrival and headed for their power base in Wales, which had stood firm for them during the Civil War of 1321-22. They sent word ahead to their old allies, Rissa Grufford and Grufford the World, to raise troops for the cause. With almost £30,000 to his name, the king was certainly rich enough to pay a large army to defend him. By late October, Edward and the younger dispenser were in Chepstow, while the Earl of Winchester was barricaded in Bristol Castle. The Queen and Mortimer gave steady pursuit and were at Gloucester by the time the Bishop of Exeter's head arrived for Isabella's inspection. As they moved through England, magnates gathered to their sides. The King's other half-brother, Thomas of Brotherton, Earl of Norfolk, joined their company, as did Henry of Lancaster, Earl of Leicester, the younger brother of the late Earl Thomas. On 18 October, Bristol Castle was besieged by Lancastrian forces. The Earl of Winchester tried frantically to beg for his life, but neither Mortimer nor Henry of Lancaster was in any mood to spare a dispenser. After eight days of siege, their army stormed Bristol Castle and Winchester was brought out in chains. While Bristol Castle lay under siege, Edward and the younger dispenser decided that their best chance of survival lay in a flight to Ireland. With a small party of men-at-arms, they boarded a ship at Sheepstone, but the wind was against them. Desperate prayers from a friar brought no succor, and after five days spent battling the angry sea, the royal party was forced to put ashore at Cardiff and flee for the grandly rebuilt and supposedly impregnable Dispenser Castle at Carefully. While they were doing so, Isabella and Mortimer developed another piece in the diplomatic war. They issued a statement at Bristol arguing that since the king had left the realm, his son Edward, Duke of Aquitaine, should take control of the government. The statement preserved on the closed rolls cited the ascent of prelates and barons, including the Archbishop of Dublin, the Bishop of Winchester, Ellie, 
Lincoln, Hereford, and Norwich, and the king's two half-brothers, Thomas Earl of Norfolk and Edmund Earl of Kent, Henry of Lancaster, and other barons and knights then at Bristol. According to the statement, Duke Edward was chosen to lead the country with the assent of the whole community of the realm there present, that the said duke and keeper should rule and govern the realm in the name and right of the king his father. The king was stripped of his authority, and it was given, albeit temporarily, to a 14-year-old boy entirely under the sway of the queen and her lover. He assumed his responsibilities on the 26th of October. Skipping ahead a bit, we're just going to have a look at how the Plantagenets handles one of the main topics of today's episode. What to do with Edward was a vexing question. Given everything that had passed, he was irrevocably estranged from Mortimer and his wife. The Queen could not even visit her husband in his prison at Kenilworth Castle, where he was held over Christmas 1326. Adam Orlerton, Bishop of Hereford, reported that if Edward saw his wife, he was liable to kill her. Words later attributed to Orlerton, although he denied them, were that Edward carried a knife in his hose to kill Queen Isabella, and if he had no other weapon, he would crush her with his teeth. Twenty disastrous years had demonstrated to all that the king was incapable of ruling competently, yet nearly 175 years of Plantagenet rule had been based on an evolving partnership between kings and the community of the realm. Kings had been threatened with deposition, John, Henry III, and Edward I had all been warned that they might be deprived of their thrones in a moment of crisis, but the reality was quite different. The whole basis of English law and governance, which for the most part operated to the advantage of the majority of English subjects, rested on an authority that stemmed ultimately from the crown. The king was counselled by his advisers, and he consulted parliaments over matters of taxation and war, but he remained the source of all public authority and in a properly functioning realm, the bulwark against anarchy. Who had the right to depose him and declare another man king? Who could speak for his higher authority? If the realm unilaterally deposed, or worse, killed the king, was it not killing itself? What hope was there of order in a state where a king who upset a faction of his kingdom might summarily be removed? These were all, to some degree, unanswerable questions, yet everyone agreed on one political reality. Edward had to be removed from power. To bolster the case against him, Isabella and Mortimer's propaganda machine ground into action. Bishop Orlerton was active in preaching that Isabella and her son had returned to England because the king and dispenser were sodomites and tyrants. From this point on, Edward's reputation as a degenerate homosexual began to run wild throughout contemporary chronicles. As soon as Christmas celebrations had finished, Parliament assembled at Westminster to decide the king's fate. Edward utterly refused to travel from Kenilworth and engage with the proceedings, probably reasoning that without him present, the Parliament would lack legitimacy. But this was another misjudgment, and business carried on without him. The Bishop of Hereford addressed Parliament on 12 January and asked the assembly whether Edward II should continue as king or be replaced by his son. By the evening, it was decided that he should be replaced, and a series of articles of accusation were drawn up. The following day, Roger Mortimer stood up in Westminster Hall and told the assembled prelates and lay nobles that magnates collectively wished for the inadequate king to be removed from the realm. Westminster then heard sermons from the leading bishops of the realm giving ecclesiastical weight to the decision that had been taken. The Bishop of Hereford preached upon the text of Proverbs 11.14, where there is no governor the people shall fall. The Bishop of Winchester used the phrase, Caput muen doleo, my head hurts, to argue that an evil head spread evil thoughts
thought throughout the body of the kingdom. Finally, the Archbishop of Canterbury gave a sermon in French using the text, The voice of the people is the voice of God. When he had finished telling the assembly that God had heard their prayers for a remedy to the evils of Edward's reign, he introduced the 14-year-old boy, Edward, Duke of Aquitaine, who is to be the new king. Glory, Lord, and honor was sung. Later in the day, oaths were sworn at the Guildhall to protect and uphold the honor of Queen Isabella and her son who would be king. All that remained now was to convince Edward himself to concur with the wishes of the community of the realm and voluntarily relinquish his office. To that end, a delegation of 24 worthy men was sent to Kenilworth to confront him. Henry of Lancaster and the bishops of Winchester and Lincoln were sent ahead of the rest of the group and on 20 January they met the king and told him that his time had passed. Edward resisted. The chronicler Geoffrey Le Baker says that he was told that failure to abdicate in favour of his son would mean deposition. A new non-Plantagenet king would be elected and his entire bloodline, not merely his own person, would be removed from kingship. A tearful argument followed and by the time the 21 remaining representatives of the realm arrived, Edward was so grief-stricken that he had to be held on his feet by Lancaster and the Bishop of Winchester. On 24, 1327, London woke to the proclamations that Edward had, of his own goodwill and with the common assent of the prelates, earls and barons and other nobles of all the commonality of the realm, resigned the government of the realm. A new king had been appointed. Edward, Duke of Aquitaine, had become King Edward III, and Edward II was reduced once more to Edward of Carniform. Sir William Trussell, the hanging judge of the invasion, had formally withdrawn homage on behalf of all the kingdom. Oaths were sworn to a new king, and those voices that dissented were momentarily drowned out by the clamor of the revolutionaries. So that's a very different description of what happened, and it's a slightly more impersonal one. That being said, it talks briefly about some of the political realities that were discussed in the other book that we looked at, The History of England, but it doesn't really touch on them in great detail. It raises constitutional questions, or I suppose succession questions. How do we create a order of succession when the king is already alive? But it doesn't raise political questions like how are we going to manage this new government and parliament that we have taken by force? I think in this case, it's worth having both of these sources in the discussion for today's episode so that we can understand that different people are going to bring different levels of information. And some of that information is going to be wrong. And some of that information is going to be right. There is very rarely, if ever, going to be one true source of what happened on a particular occasion, especially in a time before first-person accounts were much more valued by historians, before history became a real practice, before there were video and audio recordings of events and discussions about them. Even in today's society, there are a lot of major events that are subject to interpretation. And so that kind of obfuscation is something that exists in a much greater amounts and is sometimes much harder to pierce in events that happened hundreds of years ago. So whenever you're listening to this, do remember to take everything with a grain of salt. 
I am no expert, I'm just an enthusiast, and certainly even when we are reading the accounts from experts, new and old, we can find the people's personal opinions come into different play, or if someone makes one assumption, that can lead to a domino effect as they interpret data down the road, and two people could be doing an excellent job and still both end up in two places. I'll mention here as well that, unfortunately, it's hard to say what happens to King Edward II after this. There are a number of theories, and we'll probably hear a few of them as time goes on, but unfortunately, it's not clear exactly how he spent the rest of his days. One of the possibilities is that he became ill, had some kind of accident. It's also widely considered that he was simply killed as soon as it felt it would become palatable to the general populace or any kind of nobles who supported him, and that the assassination was done simply to make sure that there wasn't any kind of lingering sort of question of who should be king in case Edward III didn't do a good job or somehow someone wishing to become the new favourite of Edward II didn't try and stage some kind of revolt on his behalf. Either way, Edward II was not long for the world. He did die shortly after, and this is, for better or for worse, going to be the end of his story. Next week, we'll be looking at the start of the reign of Edward III. He is all of a teenager at this point and has already been pronounced King of England. He is going to be ruling alongside his mother and her supporters, who are still very influential players and have considerable lands, monies, and political influence. So this is a chance for a new parliament, a new council of people to push for a new direction for England. Hopefully it's going to be a better one, but there's nothing to say that a new team is going to play the game any better than the last one. So if you'd like to know a little bit more about what happens as England receives its third Edward, stick around and I'll see you next week for more Chronicles The Hundred Years War.